0: So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. If you can, I'd like for you to turn with me in your Bibles to, the, uh, to Genesis chapter 32. We're going to be in Genesis 32 and 33 today. And today we bring ourselves to a conclusion of a series that has been very meaningful Um, to to many of us, uh, the patriarchs and matriarchs. And today we conclude with a reading from chapter 32, beginning in verse 22. Hear these words. The same night he, that's Jacob, got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. The reading of the sacred word. It's reliable, and it can be trusted. Let's bow together. God, in this moment of focus, in this moment of attentiveness, we pray that you would remove from the shoulders of your worshipers any burdens that keep us from freely worshiping you in this study. We pray that your spirit, which is alive and in us, would unclutter the heart and center the soul, that if only for a little while we may be able to see something that changes everything, speak to us now, Lord, for we, your people, are listening. Amen. So today we do come to a bit of a conclusion, and it's a little bittersweet. I kind of hate to end this study. I've enjoyed it quite a bit, this journey with our patriarchs and matriarchs through a majority of the book of Genesis. We've been studying their lives and looking at all that they experienced as they said yes to yield their life before a God who says, Come and follow, and I will be your God, and I will bless you, and I will give you everything that you need And we will be in covenant with one another. And we watched them, the patriarchs and the matriarchs, as they said yes and as they struck out onto their journey and all of the successes and all of the failures that were their own. And we've learned valuable lessons over these past 13 weeks about what it looks like to live the life of faith and to walk in the way of faith. And we, hopefully along the way, have said something real, have said something that mattered, said something that we were able to connect to because we recognize that these were not superheroes. They were not more than human. They were us. And they are us. And the lives that they lived and attempted to live are the very same lives that you and I are attempting to live. And we are strengthened when we learn from their journey so that somewhere along the way others may learn from our own as we walk with faith to follow this one we call Christ. So lately, the last several weeks, the focus of our attention has been on Jacob. Jacob, the patriarch who is the heel grabber. We watched his life as he grew up into his early adulthood. And he tried to climb and contend and compete with everyone around him. And he tricked his way. He connived his way. He supplanted his way to the top by heel grabbing everyone he could find. He's the one whose very name, Yahov, means the heel grabber. And along the way, we have said that Jacob represents that false self in all of us, that part of us that attempts to project some perfect image to grab our way to the top. And We've learned some lessons from Jacob along the way. Several weeks ago, we saw that he grabbed the heel of his brother for the very last time, and his brother said, I'm done. I am done with you and he vowed to kill his brother Jacob. So Jacob had to leave his home where he was raised, and he struck out and crossed the Jordan to a land he'd never been to before, and he lived among the people of Laban, his, his uncle, who became his father-in-law. And there in that land, he, he, he gained wives and children, lots of them. He gained flocks. He became successful. He became powerful and influential, And up until last week we watched how his heel grabbing continued and he didn't stop in those trickery ways. He continued in his way of conniving his way to the top until he tricked his father-in-law Laban for one last time. And had to slip out of town at night. And he's on the run again. But we watched last week as something began to happen in the heart of Jacob. We began to see that God had planted something of a desire in Jacob's heart even six years prior to begin reconciling with his brother. He began to feel as if it's time to go home. And we talked last week about how God will do that. God will plant something in the heart of us about a thing and then wait and wait and wait. And over the course of years, We'll water the thing that he has planted in us. We'll send sunlight upon it. We'll send rain upon it until just the right time. When the circumstances of our lives are just ripe, something grows. And with Jacob, that thing that grew was his desire to go home. To make peace with his brother. And this is where we catch up with him in our text today. He's on his way back to meet Esau. It's not going to be an easy reconciliation. It's going to be a confrontation for the ages. The last time he spoke to his brother, his brother promised, vowed to kill him. But before we dig into the text and do some excavation, before we dig down into the passage that we read just a moment ago, I just want to offer an observation that is kind of an observation before our observation. Can we do that? I mean, if I were working on my dissertation right now, I would say, this is what you call prolegomena. (laughs) The prolegomena is the word you offer before the word you offer. (laughs) So if I can offer a word before the word that I offer, it will be this. We all know that Jacob is on his way to see his brother. We know a confrontation is coming. But what might be subtle, what might be easy to miss in this text is that Jacob has not one encounter, but two Not one confrontation, but two. One with his brother and one with God. At the end of chapter 32, we see him having a confrontation with God himself and it occurs to me that all throughout the Bible, if you seek to make peace with God, you must first make peace with your brother. All throughout the biblical narrative, if one is seeking to make peace with a brother, one must make peace with God. That seeking peace with God and seeking peace with your brother or sister, well, they are inextricably bound to one another in the biblical text. You can't have one without the other. Do you know that our Jewish sisters and brothers They have an interesting tradition. Once a year on Yom Kippur, a day of atonement, once a year, our Jewish brothers and sisters, they ask forgiveness from God on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. But do you know what happens before the day of atonement? At Ev Yom Kippur, Eve of Yom Kippur, they are required to ask forgiveness of other people. There's a season of preparation so that on your way to asking forgiveness of God, you first have to make sure you ask forgiveness of all those whom you have wronged. In some traditions, it even includes going to the graveyard and asking forgiveness of your ancestors. Forgive me, for I have lived in a way that is contrary to the covenant that you handed down to me. And I think that is just beautiful. Because the implication is you can't ask God forgiveness until you have sought forgiveness of brother and sister. Is this what our Lord meant when Jesus, teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, said, look, here's the deal. If you go to worship and you go to bring your offering and worship, but on your way in, on your way from the parking lot to the pew, you remember that you have a sister or a brother who has a problem with you, you have offended them, or they're upset with you, they're angry, there's something festering between you, Jesus says, leave what you've brought to the church, at the church, and go make peace with your brother or sister. And then come back and make your offering to God. In the mind of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, it is so important in the mind of God that we make peace with one another that God would prioritize our peacemaking above our own worship. We read about it again in 1 John, these words, Those who say, I love God, yet hate their brothers or sisters, are liars. For those who do not love a brother or a sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And I just want to offer that observation before we dig into the text. In other words, if I had time, I would make that observation. Yeah. I want to offer that because it, it is absolutely possible that in this room somewhere, somebody today has come here because you're struggling to make peace with something. And it may be that you're, you're trying to make peace with God about something. It may be that you're trying to make peace with a sister, a brother, a neighbor, an enemy. It may even be that you've come here because you can't find peace with yourself. And I'm telling you, there is nothing more beautiful or spiritually faithful to God than your pursuit of peacemaking with people. And that's what Jacob's up, up to, not, not, just, not just at the end, but right here in the text. That's what he's attempting to do. In fact, 33, chapter 33 is where he meets Esau, but chapter 32 is where he's preparing to meet Esau. So we might even say that chapter 32, where you and I are today, is kind of a pathway to peacemaking. And there are some things that we can learn this morning about the pathway to peacemaking that our patriarch Jacob can teach us. Now he knows on his way to his brother that it's going to be a hot meeting. He knows it's not going to be easy. That's why he does a few things to prepare. He sends an advance party ahead of himself. He sends some messengers ahead and and, and they send a message to Esau and this is the message. He says, look, I'm coming in peace and and I I hope that I find favor in your eyes, Esau. And then the messengers came back to Jacob with this response. The messengers returned to Jacob saying, we we came to your brother Esau uh, and he's, he's coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. Now, those are not Esau's you know, golf buddies. The, 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 that, it's not the Rotary Club of Moab. Okay. These are men of war. And as soon as Jacob hears this, of course, it strikes a chord of absolute fear in him. So he prepares, he does some things to prepare for the meeting. He divides up his people into two groups. He prays. He, he puts together a big gift to send to Esau. See, he, he divides his people. There are many people now that were Jacob's people. And he decided that half of them, I want you to move this way, and half go in the other direction because if Esau comes with 400 men, he, he may kill every man, woman, child, and, and house cat that we have. And we're going to divide ourselves so that at least half of us may live. He also assembles this, uh, this huge peace offering. The text tells us what it is he prepares to give Esau. Here's a list of the things. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, and 20 rams. 30 milk camels and colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. Now, if that doesn't make peace, I don't know what will. <laughs> but please keep in mind what's going on when he's assembling all this stuff. Jacob is the one who is intended to remind us of our false self, remember? Part of the false self in all of us is that part of us that attempts to project power, project influence, project our very best light, our persona. And Jacob knows that Esau knows that when Jacob left 20 years ago, Jacob had nothing. Jacob crossed over that river with nothing in his hand but his staff, and now he's coming back with all these people and all this stuff, and he's attempting to communicate with Esau, look, it may be worth your while to make peace with me because I'm a man that can get some things done. See, the false self does that. It tries to influence and connive. He's still heel-grabbing, see? So he sends this gift ahead, but he also does some serious praying. Jacob does. I want us to pay attention to the prayer that we read about in chapter 32. Here is the text. Jacob prays to the Lord, I am not worthy of the least of all the steadfast love and all the the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed the Jordan and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, please, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I am afraid of him. He may come and and kill us all, the mothers with the children, yet you have said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted because of their number. This is the prayer that Jacob is praying before he sees Esau, who may just kill him. And he prays to God this prayer of deep humility. He says, when I crossed the Jordan last time when I was leaving town, I I had nothing. I was empty-handed and open-hearted. I had nothing. And here I am crossing back over the river and I have all this influence and all this success and it's because of you. You have blessed me. You, You have done all of this for me, but I am terrified right now. Deliver me from the hand of my brother. And then he does something very interesting. He reminds God of something God promised. He says, you are the one who said that you would be with me and that you would bless me and give me all these children and all this this success. You are the one who has promised this to me. In other words, Jacob, in his prayer, reminds God of God's job And the ancient rabbis are perfectly content with that kind of language because people of the covenant were absolutely welcome to remind the maker of the covenant to hold up the maker's end of the deal. But the truth is, Jacob is not reminding God of God's job at all. Jacob is reminding Jacob of God's job. Sometimes when we face the most critical, daunting uh, season in our life, when we have no option, we run out of, of tricks, bag of tricks. We have no, we don't know how we're going to survive the next morning. It's important in that moment to remember God's job. To rest upon the promises that God has made. And I don't know if perhaps maybe you're, you're on the brink of a next day confrontation in your life and you've run out of resources, and you don't exactly know how you're going to negotiate peace. You don't know what you're going to do to make it right. Maybe the only thing you need to do right now is simply remember what has been promised to you. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. In Jeremiah, we read those words. Plans for your welfare and not for your harm. Plans to give you a future with hope. Maybe somebody today needs to hear the words that come from like Deuteronomy. These words of promise from Deuteronomy be strong and bold. Have no fear or dread of them because it is the Lord your God who gives or who goes with you. He will not fail or forsake you. It It wouldn't. be such a bad idea for somebody who may be a little nervous about your future to remember the final words of Jesus at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. He ends the Gospel of Matthew, or Matthew ends the Gospel of Matthew, with these final words from Jesus Remember, I am with you always, even until the end, even to the end of this age. See, what's important for you and me to do and to remember at a moment in which we wake up in the morning and face the unknown, it's important for us to remember what God has already made known. God is not going anywhere. That God has your best in mind. And the reason it's hard for us to remember is because typically when we get to that place, you and I depend on our resources and the limitations of our own negotiating power. (laughs) Well, here are all my... Here are all my my female goats. Here are all my my camels. Here's everything I I have to put onto the table on my way to peace, but eventually you run out of tricks. And in those moments when you come to the end of your resources and you recognize the limitations of your capacity to negotiate your way forward, Hmm. it's then, more than ever, that you have to remember God has promised to never leave you alone. It's then that we remember the words from the Proverbs, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not unto your own understanding, lean not unto your own negotiating power, lean not unto your own clever tricks about making your way forward and keeping peace with you. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. Do you know what it means to acknowledge him? The truth is, if you are in conflict right now with a neighbor, a brother, a sister, a family member, whoever, you realize you and I either believe that God's presence and God's action is alive in us, or we don't. If we do believe, like we say every week in some form or fashion, if we do believe that the presence and action of God are alive in us, then we're not the only ones at the negotiating table. And if we really believe that God's presence and action is alive in every mortal on the planet, then guess what? Even in our enemies, there is the capacity of God to work in their hearts while God is working in our hearts to find the peace that neither of us could have come up with on our own. Jacob, in his prayer, remembered the promise of God And it's a good thing because that night he was going to need it. That night we read that he sent all of his people across the river. And he stayed back on one side to spend the night by himself. This is the way the scripture describes that moment. The same night he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and likewise everything that he had pay attention to that language Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak This is such a beautiful story it's so powerful for he's there on the one side of the river and he has chosen to send all that he has at his disposal to the other side of the river and now he's left alone He's left alone this interesting language, Jacob was left alone. Isn't it interesting that you and I don't let God get us alone very much? God is always trying to get us alone. Because God knows that it's only when we are alone, when all of our stuff has gone across the river and we've got nothing left, God knows that it's only when we are alone, when we cannot any longer insulate ourselves and protect ourselves and defend ourselves with all of the mechanisms that keep us at an arm's distance from everybody. It's only when we're alone that we learn a dependency upon the God who won't leave us alone. Jacob is there, and everything that he has has been sent across the river, and he is in a place of absolute vulnerability and transparency. He's once again empty handed and open hearted. And that is the only posture where true transformation can happen in any of us. And then the language continues. It's provocative. It says, a man wrestled with him until daybreak. A man. Well, what man was that? I mean, who is this stranger in the night? Everybody that he knows is on the other side of the river. He sent all of his stuff, all his tricks, all his protections, all his comforts over. He's left by himself. And here's this stranger in the night. There are many theories about who this strange wrestler in the night was. I mean, the text says it was just a man. But later in the story, there is a a language, there is a nuance in the Hebrew that says it's either a man or a divine being, an angel. By the end of the story, we have him calling this guy God. I have now seen God face to face. I have struggled with God, and I have not died. So which is it? This wrestler in the night, is it some man? Is it an angel? Is it, is it God? And the answer is unclear, which I think may be the point. Sometimes the greatest struggle that we have, the most fierce wrestling match that you and I have, are with opponents that we can't quite identify. I think it was 1998 that was the year of the Mike Tyson evander Holyfield fight. You remember that? And that, if that doesn't toggle your memory, maybe this will. That's, that's the earbite fight. Where they're they're duking it out, these two heavyweights. It is an extraordinary match. And they're just slugging it out. And in, in the middle of it, it was a season in which Tyson had gone through a very emotionally disturbed period in his life. Is that a pastoral way to say it? Is that okay? I mean he was off the rails and so he was fighting and he was in the midst and they locked up for a minute and he, he reaches up and bites a chunk off of the ear of Evander Holyfield spits it right out on the canvas Evander's, Holyfield, Evander's ear is, is bleeding and, and they have to stop the fight for a minute they stop the bleeding and they continue they lock up again <laughs> and Tyson bites him again This time they stop the fight completely. They disqualify Tyson, and the ring is filled with people. Security guards, bodyguards, uh, the sheriff, uh, people working in the corner, the towel man, the water man, the the medic. They're filled, and and there's this moment in which pandemonium, chaos is in the ring, and Tyson keeps swinging at people. He keeps swinging at his own corner people, the sheriff. He keeps swinging at the officials. And he's slugging at everybody who is in reach. And I remember one line from the the commentator. He said, truly this is one confused young man. That's exactly what's going on with Jacob. He's taken a swing at just about everybody. He's blamed everybody in his life for his lot in life. It's not my fault, it's my brother's fault. Well, it's my father's fault, he didn't bless, it was Laban's fault. It's a man in the night. What does that mean? He's taking a swing at just about any man. In fact, there is some tradition who says, this part of the story where he's wrestling this unidentified man, there's uh, there's some theories that say this is an older version of the Esau story, and he's actually fighting Esau. Whether he's physically fighting or not, you and I know what it's like to stay up all night fighting ghosts of your past, right? So he's fighting, he's fighting, he's swinging, and he can't seem to identify who it is that he's fighting. But sooner or later, Jacob recognizes that the one that I'm wrestling is is not just a man. The text continues with the story when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So he's, then he said, Let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, watch this. Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Hmm. So he recognizes that there is there's some power in this one who's he's wrestling, which means... This, this is no ordinary man. He must be a man of influence, a man of power, a man of strength. That means he may have something I want. So he grabs him. Once again, the heel grabber with that same heel grabbing grip. He grabs this one who presumably is more than mortal and he says, I'm not, I'm not letting go because you got something that I want. Bless me. And I want you to get this this picture. He's exhausted. His hip is now out of socket, and he becomes our teacher because here he is wrestling with God, and he chooses not to let go. Most of the time when you or when I wrestle with God, and we do, there's nothing unspiritual about wrestling with God. God made us this way to call things into question, to doubt, to ask questions, to say, why? Why? to struggle, to wrestle. And when we wrestle with God, there will be seasons in which it hurts and something gets knocked out of socket. And that is the moment when you and I are usually disappointed in God, angry at God, and we choose, watch this, to let go. And we walk away. But Jacob is teaching us right here that you can wrestle with God and hang on. You can wrestle with God and hang on. You don't have to let go. In fact, if you want to be blessed, you can't be blessed if you let go. you got to hold on with both hands. You say, well, yeah, but it, it hurts. You don't know the scar that I've had. I've had some pain in my religious past. I've had some pain in my spiritual journey. I know. It hurts. When you wrestle with God, you're going to walk away with a limp. But that limp is a reminder that you've held on to something that was stronger than you. So he said, I'm not letting go until you bless me. And this is my favorite part of the story. So the man, the divine being, God, has him in this hold, and he has him in a hold. And I want you to get the picture. He's exhausted. He's been wrestling all night. He's sweating. He's out of breath. He's breathing heavy. He's talking fast. And he says, I'm not letting go. I've got this grip on you, and I'm not letting go until you bless me. And the the wrestler says, okay, what is your name? And he says, my name is Jacob. No, 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 what is your name? My name is Jacob. I am Jacob. I am Yahov, I am the heel grabber. I am the cheater. I am the trickster. I am the heel grabber. And in that moment, his transformation comes through confession. He comes to the place where he recognizes I can blame no other man for my plot. I can blame uh, no other divine being. I cannot even blame God because the truth is, I am Jacob. I am the trickster. It is me. My enemy is not the man, not God. My enemy is in a me. And if Jacob is our reminder of the false self in all of us, then here's the beauty of this story. He's wrestling with God to remind us that you and I are wrestling every day. There's a wrestling match within each of us. It is the wrestling match between our true and our false self. And until we learn how to name it, until we can identify that's part of my false self creeping up. If we can't name it and embrace it and claim the fact that we have a Jacob in us, then we will never recognize it when that Jacob, that false self, begins to sabotage our lives See, the beauty of the story is that Jacob confronts a God who makes Jacob confront Jacob. And that's the way we do it in faith. When you walk the way of faith, you confront the God who makes you confront you. When you walk, when we walk the way of faith, we confront the God who makes us confront ourselves. And we can go all day long assuming that we've done nothing wrong. It's Esau's fault. It's my parents' fault. It's my uncle's fault. I'm in this situation and it's nobody's fault. But we hear the words from 1 John ring in our ears. If we say we have no sin, we heel grab ourselves. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Beloved, I just want to offer those thoughts to you today because it may be that in your own journey, in your own pursuit of peacemaking with God or with others or maybe even in your own pursuit of peacemaking with yourself, You need to come to the place where your prayer is, Lord, there is false in me. I am Jacob. Show me what is required to be set free. Let's take just a moment and offer that prayer as we conclude. Now with me. God, in this moment of of attentiveness this moment in which we have studied your word, Lord, make us aware. Make us aware that there is a wrestling within all of us. But there is also a victory within all of us. Show us what it looks like to embrace and hold on even if wrestling with you leaves us with a limp so that we may forever walk in the way of faith. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen.